I, uh, we're, we're, we're wrapping up uh, this week our sermon series through the summer that we've called Great Stories. And what we've tried to do in this sermon series is open up a lot of the Old Testament stories and show you how Christ is at the center of every Old Testament story you could ever read. It all always points us to Christ. And not only are the Old Testament stories not relevant, but they're highly practical. And what we try to do is just slow down, study these stories, and think, how do we apply this? What are the principles that we need to learn from each of these stories to apply in our modern day life? I was reading a pastor, a book to pastors recently, and he, uh, he was kind of tongue-in-cheek, a little humorously, but... He was describing what uh, many of the congregants in his church's Sunday morning is like. And bear with me as I retell this quick little anecdotal story. He says, imagine a man in your congregation, he wakes up uh, in the morning to a, a screaming child who needs something. And he runs in the room, he woke up before he intended to, but the child has him frazzled. He tries to get a bottle ready because, so his wife can keep sleeping, but the child just won't stop screaming. And so he takes the child upstairs, but by the time he gets upstairs, the other kids are already awake, and they've now lost a couple hours of sleep that he was hoping they were going to have. And so now he's just kind of out of sorts. He pours them a quick bowl of cereal, but, you know, one of the kids spills their bowl of cereal and Cheerios all over the floor, and he gets behind the kitchen fridge, and so now he's got to pull the fridge out, and he, you know, he's got to get the towel down there and mop up the empty Cheerios that are down there. Those with kids already know this is pretty much what most mornings end, <laughs> end up being like. And... Uh, he says, by the time he looks at his clock, he realizes that church is going to start in half an hour. Church is going to start in half an hour. So he's, he's just scrambling. He's trying to get everybody ready. He's got to take a shower. He's got to get ready. He's got to get the kids ready. By the time he gets all his kids ready, one of the kids has poured Kool-Aid down the front of their shirt, so he's got to go change that again. They jump into their car. By the time they get to church, they're 10 minutes late. They come into the back. They take the seat in the very back, and the first few songs, the, the kids are with them. They haven't dismissed the children to their kids' classrooms yet. And so they're with them, but he's just focused on the kids, trying to keep them from doing anything too crazy while everyone's singing and worshiping. But right in the middle of that, he had gotten a cup of coffee from the coffee bar, and, and one of his kids kicked the coffee over, and it was spreading out throughout all the people's feet that he was trying to worship next to. So he went over, he grabbed some paper towels, he's trying to clean it up. Finally, he sits down in his chair, and the pastor says, kids are dismissed to the kids' classroom. His kids wave goodbye. And that man then sits down in his chair and does the closest thing to a nap that he could possibly do for the next hour while he listens to the pastor's sermon. His kids are finally out of sight, and he's ready to just sit and kind of be put to sleep by the pastor. What do you expect when you come to church on the Lord's Day? What are your expectations of what you should do in preparation to make sure your heart is ready to be changed by what God's going to do in the congregation on a Sunday? I share that story, and my guess is it, it touches home on a lot of people's. It, it's touching something that's kind of too true, uncomfortably too true. How have you prayed for your congregation, for what God's going to do on the Sunday morning, how he's going to move and how he's going to change people's lives and how people who are far from God are going to be coming in and having their lives changed and how people who have demonic oppression are going to be coming in and they're going to get those chains broken. How have you been praying for this holy thing that we call the gathering of the saints? Are you prepared when you come on a Sunday for God to wreck you? To really just 
kind of do some spiritual surgery on your heart and, and open you up, remove the pollution, and then stitch you back up together again? Or is your expectation that it's kind of the pre-nap before the Sunday afternoon nap? We're going to address these questions by looking at a very strange story in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 2 Samuel chapter 6, kind of about one quarter of the way through the thickness of your Bible. And in this story, this is uh, early on in King David's kingship. So King David, the greatest king in the Old Testament that, that, we, uh, that we know of, King, King David, he's just become king, and this is a moment where he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Now, context for you. What's the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant was this big box that held the Ten Commandments inside of it. And it was a central part of the worship of the people of God in the Old Testament, Eventually, after the years of David, when a temple was built by David's son, the, the Ark of the Covenant went in the, the most holy place in the temple where only the high priest of Israel could go once a year, and he'd spill blood over the top of the Ark of the Covenant. It was a sacred object in the life and the community of Israel. And it had been outside of, of Jerusalem, but David now is kind of establishing Jerusalem. If you're wondering why Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, it's because of this moment. David established Jerusalem really as the capital of Israel. And it really was done in this moment when he brought the ark in and established it as a center place of worship. Now, from this passage, what I want to try to draw out for us today are two, two truths, two principles of God-exalting worship that I think should guide us in everyday practical living. Now, the first principle is this. God-exalting worship is specific and reverently obedient. God-exalting worship is specific and reverently obedient. What I mean by that is it's specific. <clears throat> when we look at the Word of God, we, we aren't just kind of creating however we want to worship God. We look at the actual words themselves, and then we do what the words say. And we don't just want to come up with new ways to worship God that are actually kind of deviations from what God said. We want to do it God's way. So it's specific, and it's reverently obedient. Reverence means this, this overwhelming sense of the majesty of God. And because of who he is, we delight in doing things the way God says to do them. Specific and reverently obedient. Let me read to us verses 1 to 11. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel... 30,000 of them. This is a pretty big deal. 30,000 men of Israel. And David arose and he went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah, that's where the Ark of the Covenant had been being held, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Pause. On the top of the Ark was this ornate golden kind of lid. And the design of it was that there was a, these two angels called cherubim with two long wings on either side facing each other like this. It was beautiful to look at. And uh, in the center of those two angels was what was considered the throne of God. Now, obviously, this is not the true throne of the Father, but when God would come and speak to Moses, he would descend on top of the Ark of the Covenant and he'd, he'd speak to him from that place. When God would do business with the high priest of Israel, he would descend in some kind of form into that space. And so it was considered a throne of God, enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, where it had been kept, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the Ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. 
And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and with lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, and he took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. All right. Now, this might sound like a rather strange story from the Old Testament, but I believe that there are deep principles that apply to us as modern-day Christians for how we ought to approach God and how we ought to worship God together. Let's summarize the story. David has called together 30,000 men. Now, why so many men? Well, there was a 10-mile hike from where they were, from Baal Judah to Jerusalem, and that's a pretty rocky terrain. It's not, like, there's not an easy road to go. It's also a bit of a dangerous terrain in those days. So, and the Ark of the Covenant was a central piece of the worship of God, and so he brought his military around him. He wanted to make sure that as they transported this thing, they didn't get attacked by some other army, and they couldn't defend themselves and save the Ark. So he had 30,000 men there with him, but it wasn't just a parade of military men. This was a celebration. They were dancing. They were singing. They were, they were playing musical instruments, probably very similar to what we were just doing here, although it was this moving parade through this 10-mile journey. We're told that they had put the ark on a cart that was being pulled by two new oxen, or by new oxen. Now, now this is a problem. This is a very big problem. Because the Lord had given specific instructions. Remember the word we're talking about, our principle here. God-exalting God worship is specific. Well, God had given very specific instructions for how to transport the ark. Let me read to you from Exodus 25, verse 14. Referring to the ark, it says, You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The ark of the covenant was designed with two big rings on, on all the four corners, and you'd slide a pole into it, and it was to be carried on foot by Levitical priests. Specific. That's how it was to be carried. In fact, it was the Philistines who had first put the ark on a new cart in one of the previous stories. In a previous story, they had stolen the ark of the covenant. It's a great terror among the Philistine people, and when they returned it, they put it on a new cart carried by oxen. Ungodly people who did not have the instructions of God, that's how they did it. But here's David with all the priests who knows the commands of God, bringing the Ark of the Covenant on a new cart being pulled by oxen. As, as Bible readers, when we, before we even get to the part of the story with Uzzah, when we just see that it's being carried on a, on a new cart, and we know the law of God, we should be going, this is not going to turn out good. Everyone there knew that's not how you handle the ark of God. Now, at some point, the inevitable happens. They're going over this rocky 10-mile journey. The oxen stumble. The cart begins to tilt. The ark of the covenant begins going, and you can just imagine everyone saying, not the ark of the covenant, no, no, Uzzah is the closest to it. He runs over, he grabs a hold of it, and probably a heavy thing, tries to put it back on the ark, but as soon as he grabs a hold of it, God strikes him down dead, and he falls down beside the ark. 
And the whole parade comes to a standstill. David, realizing what's taking place, overwhelmed with the situation. The text is debatable what David's angry at. It says that he was angry. Is he angry at Uzzah for touching the ark? Or is he angry at God that God would so punish Uzzah to kill him for simply touching the ark? We're not quite sure. I think he's angry at Uzzah for touching the ark. But the whole thing stops and David says, just get the ark out of here for right now. I can't, t- I can't, I- I can't be that close to it. Now, to understand what's going on here, we have to have a little bit of a contextual background here. Uzzah was part of the Levites in the Old Testament. His family was Levitical. Now, that's important. Who were the Levites? The Levites in the Old Testament were a tribe of Israel, so Israel being all the people of God, and the Levites were one of the 12 tribes, and they had very specific responsibilities. They were in charge of everything having to do with ceremonial worship. They were in charge of the Ark of the Covenant. They were in charge of all the utensils, the supplies. They were in charge of putting the tabernacle up and tearing it down. And there were unbelievably specific instructions for how they should handle all of these things. They knew them. Uzzah would have been trained as a young boy how to handle all the pieces. And there was one rule above every rule that every Levite, including beyond the Levites, that every person of God in Israel would have known, but the Levites especially, whatever you do, do not touch the ark. Numbers verse, chapter four, verse 15. This is referring to years before when the ark was being constructed. When Aaron and his sons had finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath, that's a group of the Levites, shall come to carry all of these things, but they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry, then it lists them out, the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, the group of Levites, the Kohathites, who were specifically in charge of carrying the Ark of the Covenant, were not even allowed to look at the Ark of the Covenant per the word of God. It was so holy. It was the throne of God. Keep in mind, this is what we're discussing. The place where God would dwell and speak to humanity. And so, Numbers verse four, chapter 4, verse 20 says, They shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. Now, God's law is very specific. God's law is very specific. And it told them very specifically, don't look at it, don't touch it. It's the throne of God. Uzzah touched it. He broke the law. Now, what had gotten into Uzzah's heart? Why, why in that moment did he think it was okay to do it? Well, I think maybe a handful of things were going on. Number one, it's one of those everyone was doing it situations, isn't it? Uzzah knew the law. He knew that it shouldn't be on an ox cart. He knew that it was supposed to be carried on the poles, but here's 30,000 men. There's King David. King David's good with this. My dad, Abinadab, is driving the cart. He's, a, he's a, like a big dog Levitical priest. If he's good with it, I guess this is okay. So they're watering down worship a little bit, but Uzzah's kind of going along with it. I guess everyone else is fine with this. And all of a sudden, it's being watered down just enough. He sees it stumble, and that one thing he knows he's not supposed to do, maybe if it wasn't that big of a deal to do that, maybe it's not a big idea to do this. This is the principle we all teach our kids, right? Just to say, if everyone's doing it, doesn't make it it doesn't make it okay. Same principles apply to worship. But I think maybe there's a second thing happening here, maybe an over-familiarity with the things of God that had developed a casualness in the way he was approaching God. Now, why would he have an over-familiarity with the things of God? Well, his dad was Abinadab, and Abinadab had the Ark of the Covenant in his house for the last 20 years. I think it was 20 years. It was a handful of years. 
So here's Uzzah. He, he's known this thing's been in his dad's house for a long time. He's been going by it. He's been going to family meals at his dad's house. It's over there. He knows where it is. He's just going about his day. And over time, you grow pretty casual with the things of God. Now, he should never have grown casual with the Ark of the Covenant, but from a human experience perspective, we could see how that might happen. You're around something long enough, the majesty of it all just begins to seem normal, and you take things for granted a little bit. Still, though, to be honest, reading this passage for the first time, I remember the first time I read it, this sounds overly cruel of God. I mean, wasn't Uzzah just trying to protect it? Wasn't it a good thing he was trying to do? Maybe he made a mistake, but it seemed like he was trying to help the situation. In the Old Testament, there are over 30 different crimes that are punishable by death. 30 of them. Murder, rape, sexuality outside of God's design for sexuality, stealing human beings and selling them. All of these are punishable by death. Fortune telling. And one of them is touching the ark, looking at the ark. Now, why is that? Well, I think the answer is in verse two. Let me read you again verse two from our passage today. It reads this. And David rose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned upon the cherubim. This is not just a, an object designed for worship. This is not just some kind of ceremonial religious thing. This is the place where the eternal God meets with man. It's the throne of God. And Uzzah would dare to think that his hands could touch the throne of God? That man had something deep going on in his heart that he had undervalued the holiness and beauty and majesty of God and so overvalued his own moral worth that he could handle the Ark of the Covenant? What had gotten into him that I might dare to touch the throne of God? He thought his hands were cleaner than the dirt, apparently. I love how R.C. Sproul puts this. Uzzah thought that his hands were cleaner than the dirt. The ark is better if it falls into my hands than if it gets a little mud on it. What a travesty that is to think about it. What's mud? mud? Mud's just mud. Mud does what mud does, what God made mud to do. His hands, though, they were, they were sin-filled. His heart was wretched before a holy God, and those hands cannot touch the holy throne of God. Now return to me to the principle that we're developing. God-exalting worship is to be specific and reverently obedient. Uzzah knew none of this. He'd been around it too long. It had grown too casual for him. He was just going through the motions. And then in this moment, it all came out of him, all the wickedness. How do we apply this today? Well, let's, let's, let's make sure we understand our situation. We're under the new covenant of Jesus Christ. So our situation is a little bit different than it was for Uzzah. They were looking forward to the day when the Messiah would come and, and finally do away with all of their sins. We live on the other side of the Messiah coming. Jesus is our Savior. He's come. He's fulfilled the law perfectly. And if you recall the story, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, something remarkable happened. A supernatural event took place. It would happen right in the middle of the temple, that room where the Ark of the Covenant was held, where the high priest could only go once a year. It was covered by a curtain that was about as tall as this room, a big, thick curtain 
woven with thick wool. And in the moment when Jesus died, the curtain was torn in two. And the image that you get reading the scriptures is that the father went up to the curtain and tore it like I might tear a piece of paper. Just tore it like a contract. It's, it's done. And the symbolism of that moment is that the intimacy of the throne room of God has been made available to all people, not just to the high priest. That God in his mercy, because of what Christ has done on the cross, now we all have access into the Holy of Holies. We don't have to go to Jerusalem and beg a high priest to stand before God on our behalf, but we just go before God, and if we go in the name of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, covered by the blood that he shed on the cross, then we can have access to God directly. This is the greatest news the world's ever known. And it makes a fundamental difference between us and Uzzah. And yet... There are a lot of principles to learn from Uzzah still. Uzzah had an overfamiliarity with God that I think maybe many modern New Testament Christians are mirroring in their overfamiliarity with the things of God today. The casualness with which they approach God. This is a small thing. About five months ago, I started wearing a blazer, a jacket, when I preach. Some of you noticed, and you asked me, you said, are you interviewing for a new job? <laughs> I said, no, but I've been convicted that I've been a little too casual with the pulpit. And uh, if you know me before, I always dress business casual. I thought I was actually dressing up for church. And uh, I was listening to a preacher talk about the holiness of what happens in the pulpit on a Sunday, and I was convicted by the Lord. I've been too casual with the things of God. God is holy. We cannot grow so casual with the precious things of God that we begin to treat them as ordinary. And I can think of no other thing to, to preach on right now that's so important for us than the church, God's bride, Christ's bride. We could apply this in a thousand different directions. I could apply this to your own personal walk with God. I apply this to how you, how you parent. I could apply this into how you think about your vocation. Let's think about the preciousness of the bride of Christ, the church. How about even more specific, the gathering of the saints on a Sunday? One of the big words in modern church world, if you read like Christian magazines, is this word deconstructing, deconstructing your faith. And what many people mean by deconstructing their faith is something bad. It means that they're, they're, they're removing everything. Get rid of church, get rid of this, get rid of that. Try to just find this, this pure, simple Jesus, somehow detached from the church, somehow detached from the Sunday gathering. You can't do that. That's impossible. This is, this is, this is a vital part of what, church, what God is doing through the church, through his bride. Christ loves the church. Jeremiah Burroughs once wrote this. He said, the reason that we worship God in a slight way is because we do not see God in all of his glory. The reason that we have such a low view of God's church today is because we have such a low view of God. We're treating the bride of Christ like it's, we'll see. Let me give you five ways for you to think about whether this is true of your own heart. Number one, when you gather with the saints on a Sunday, do you recognize the majesty and holiness of it all? Now that one's a bit subjective, but I'm asking you to search your heart before a holy God. Do you get what's happening in this place? And do you sense that you are participating in the greatest thing that's happening on this planet right now? The greatest thing on this planet is, the, is, is Christ's bride, the church. And the sweetest part of the bride 
is when the bride comes together on a Sunday to worship, to commune, to take the Lord's Supper, to hear the preaching of the Word of God, to sing hymns to God. That's as sweet as it gets this side of heaven. If we don't know that, something's off. If we don't feel that, if this is, if this is the pre-nap before the Bears game, you've missed it. And we can't trifle with it. We, we can't play with God's design. We have to be specific and reverently obedient with God's design. If he says this is a sign and a seal of our faith, and we take this as if it was peanut butter and jelly, oh, man, I, I, I worry something, something's off, and there's punishment coming. Number two, do you prepare beforehand for the gathering of the saints? I gave you a humorous anecdotal story of what is probably a common experience for a lot of folks coming to church on a Sunday. That man had not prepared. He didn't prepare the night before, probably went to bed a little late. I get it, I have three kids. Sunday morning's gonna be a little chaotic in my house too. But we prepare to make sure that we're here and that our hearts are ready, our minds are prepared. In the Old Testament, they called this consecrating themselves. Before the people of God ever gathered to do the Lord's work, they consecrated themselves. In fact, what that meant for them is they washed their clothes, they washed their hands. There was a whole process they went through where they, they had these ritualistic ways they prepared their mind and their heart to enter into the space so they didn't just start preparing when they got to church. They had been preparing for it because they knew how holy of an event it was going to be. Jeremiah Burroughs, again, he says this. So when you go to worship God, you expect or should expect that God will come to thee and that thy heart shall be drawn to God and therefore thou should make some preparation. The duties of God's worship are great duties. They're the greatest thing that doth concern us in this world and it is a sign of a very carnal heart to slight the duties of God's worship, to make account of them as little matter. Number three. One way to make sure you're preparing your heart is by arriving on time. Now, I'm gonna make a handful of people feel very uncomfortable today. <laughs> if you arrived late, you get a gimme today, okay? You get a mulligan. We arrive late sometimes, you know, things happen in life. I get it. I'm talking about the, the regularness of your attendance to church on Sunday. Now, before you think I'm just trying to get you here because I'm the pastor and I wanna... I'm talking about the throne of God. I'm talking about the holiness of God. I'm talking about your salvation, what Christ has done for you. I'm talking about the gathering of the saints. If the president invited you to a meeting and he said it starts at 10 o'clock, you'd probably be there a bit early for it. We're talking about someone who far outranks the president. He is God. He's infinite, eternal, holy, and he holds your salvation in the palm of his hands. Where you spend eternity is in him. You're gonna be late to his meeting? If you're consistently late, it actually is, what I'm trying to show you is, that's actually revealing something else. There's an over-familiarity with this that's taken place. Something like what happened to Uzzah has taken place. We gather at 9.15 to 9.45, about 20 to 30 of us each week to pray. Might you join us for that as well? Is that important to you? Arriving on time. Number four, singing exuberantly. It would be, it would be interesting one day to just turn all the volume off and have the Lord put a megaphone by your voice when you sing, because I think it might go like this. Come and behold him forever. 
maybe that's even a decibel too high. Well, is there a problem with that? Well, yeah, there is. Now, for those that sit in this bit right here, they know I don't have a beautiful singing voice. <laughs> Dennis, I apologize. John, I apologize. You got to listen to this guy sing. To my wife, I apologize, who listens to me sing at home. But if your heart's been changed by the gospel, if Jesus shed his blood for you, eternally secured you for all of heaven, grafted you into the kingdom of God, adopted you as a child, given you the Holy Spirit to lead you in sanctification and all truth to the day when he returns and calls you home, come and behold him forever, a holy God. Yeah, I'm out of key, but you know why? Because I can't sing good, but I love God. And we need some of that in this room. We need holy singing by holy saints who have been changed by God. Number six, number five, engage with the sermon. Engage with the sermon. This is not time to fall asleep. God has commissioned the preaching of God's word by faithful pastors to change the world, to bring revival, to change your hearts, to bring the people of God to deeper communion, to bring resolution to things that have been opened in your hearts. First Peter says, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Long for it. Come with your books eagerly. Write down notes. Not because I'm something special, but God has ordained preaching to do a particular thing, and he's been doing that particular thing for 2,000 years now. His methodology hasn't changed. Here's why I'm asking these questions. A casualness with the things of God will bring about punishment from God. Uzzah thought his hands could touch the throne room of God. Now, now, here's the thing. All of us are like Uzzah, aren't we? That's our natural state is to be like Uzzah, to approach the throne of God and not have a right understanding of who we are. The great, you know, all man-made religion is the same thing. It's thinking that we can approach the throne. It's like the Tower of Babel. We can get to God on our own. If we just do it our way, we can, we can approach God. God will serve. As long as we're devout in what we're doing, God will think it's fine. And all that is, it's Uzzah over and over and over again. We've all tried to touch the throne of God. We've all tried to be God in our own selves. But rather than punishing Uzzah, rather than punishing us, the Father sent the Son, and Christ was, was struck instead of us. Rather than striking us for trying to touch the throne of God, God now sent Jesus, and he struck him for our sin, for our iniquity. And now if we look at Christ, all of our punishment's been paid. Rather than striking us dead, he struck Christ dead in our place, and we all have life. And the question that we now have to ask each ourselves is, do we receive that with a reverent obedience as people that realize we're like Uzzah and it should have been us? We touched the throne of God. We should be struck dead because of our sin, but he struck Christ instead. Our worship needs to be specific and reverently obedient. And number two, the story continues, and I'm going to go briefly through this. God-exalting worship is joyfully unashamed, is joyfully unashamed. After the death of Uzzah, David's horrified. He won't bring the ark into Jerusalem, so he leaves it in this guy named Obed-Edom's house. Well, 
he looks over and after about three months, Obed-Edom's house is flourishing. <laughs> the ark is there and there's just blessing upon blessing going into Obed-Edom's house. And so David says, okay, let's bring the ark back in. And we pick the story up. He's now bringing the ark into Jerusalem. Verse 16 of chapter six. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. (laughs) She's thinking, he looks like a nut. And so she has this confrontation with him. And then we pick up in verse 20 again, and David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servant, his servants, his female servants. She's accusing him of being naked before the female servants. As one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself, David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, And I will celebrate before the Lord. I'll make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them I'll be held in honor. And the Lord punished Michael. And the Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now, what's happening in this conversation? Michael is accusing David of dancing and singing in a way that was bringing contempt on him. She was accusing him of dancing naked. Now, he wasn't naked. He was wearing, per verse 14, he was wearing the linen ephod. He was wearing the linen clothes that they were supposed to be wearing. It wasn't the kingly robe. He had taken that off, and he was worshiping according to the law, specifically what he was supposed to be doing. In fact, in that passage, we know that they weren't using a cart anymore. It actually says that the people were carrying it the way it was supposed to be done. He got his things in order. One commentator talking about what was going on in Michael's heart, says this. She despised him for the very qualities that made him great, namely devotion to the Lord and spontaneity in worship. David exemplifies a worship that's authentic and and, and unhindered. He's got a sense of how good it is to have the Ark of the Covenant with him and the Lord's blessing that's gonna come. I mean, the Lord blessed Obed-Edom, now it's gonna bless my house and my kingdom, and, and if, if God is as good as he says he is, and how good he's been to me, and he's chosen me, yes, the blessing of God, and he had a sense of unrestrained worship. His response to Michael is full of humility. He says, oh, verse 21, that God would choose me of all people? This is a man who knows, there's not much separating me from Uzzah. I was guilty on that day too. There's not, no reason I should be a king. God just chose me by his goodness. Church, what Jesus has accomplished is so far more full of glory even than this moment when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem. It, that, that, that moment, actually, it, that parade that took place of the Ark going into the, the center of Jerusalem, that's actually supposed to be a pointer towards Jesus and his triumphal entry. Did you know that? The whole story is designed to point us towards Jesus. Not only his triumphal entry on earth, when on Palm Sunday, a parade was around him, proclaiming him as the Messiah as he walked into Jerusalem, down that same pathway, I might have you, but also that story then points us forward to after his death and resurrection, when he ascended and he entered into the the true holy of holies in heaven, and he took his throne at the right-hand side of the Father, where he right now serves as judge, interceding for the saints. This whole story is to point us towards Christ. And just as God chose David, he's chosen you. What humility are we to have at this? You're not a Christian because you mustered the faith. You're a Christian because he 
He elected you before the foundation of the earth. If it were up to you, you would not be a Christian. You would be forming your own religion right now. You would you'd be working your way to God as best as you can, but it would all be for nothing because unless you go through Jesus Christ, all your good deeds are counted as worthless rags, says the scriptures. But he chose you. He adopted you. And so an honest assessment. Search your hearts on this one. Which worship, which approach to worship better exemplifies you in this season of your life? David, unhindered, leaping for joy. Michael, you know, those guys are a little, a little overzealous over there. A little contempt for uh, the ones who are a little too zealous for God. Which one better exemplifies you? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Keep in mind, Luke chapter 9, verse 26 says this, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed of when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. To be ashamed of the gospel is to actually not know the gospel. You can't be ashamed of the gospel if you know Jesus. Now this, of course, we grow in, we work out over time, but, but if there's just this compelling, this overwhelming, I'm ashamed of what I believe, you might not actually believe. Church, let me ask you this question. Is there anything greater in this life to have enthusiasm for than for Jesus? Is there anything quite as good as the gospel? Is, is there anything so savory as friendship with God? Is there anything so satisfying as the assurance of knowing that your eternity is secure, that heaven awaits you no matter what happens by the end of this day? Is there anything as lovely as the bride of Christ, the church being the church? Is there anything as compelling as Christ-exalting worship, an unashamed Christ-honoring heralding of God's word? Is there anything as simultaneously terrifying and overwhelmingly and overwhelming as Christ crucified for you? Is there anything as terrifying or as overwhelming as Christ, the second person of the Trinity, in human form crucified for you? Is there anything as empowering as the Holy Spirit abiding in you, leading you, changing you, preparing you for life in heaven? Is there anything as secure as your salvation in the hands of your heavenly Father? Is there anything as rewarding to the soul as reading the Bible, God's precious word? Why did David dance before the Lord? Because he understood the goodness of God and the hope that he would have that the Messiah would one day come. Church, he's come. It's as good as he thought it would be and even better. Are you delighting in it this morning? From Uzzah, we learn that God-exalting worship is specific and reverently obedient. And from David, we learn that God-exalting worship is joyfully unashamed. Pray with me. Father, we want these things to be true of us. God, I pray over this church. I know there's so deep faith in this, in this room. There's faith that outshines my own. And God, I pray that you would do something powerful and remarkable in this people that this church would not settle for casualness, would not settle for making up ways to entertain ourselves with pop Christianity. God, that we would hunger for the things of God, God's way. That we would hunger for holiness, that we would hunger for joy in Christ. Anyone in this room who's experiencing conviction in the spirit right now in any way, God, I pray that you would rush to them. 
I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd go right into their heart right now and let that conviction sink deep into their hearts to expose where they've been off. If there's sin, reveal it to them and let them feel a holy guilt, a guilt that doesn't lead them to condemnation but leads them to the throne of Christ where he was crucified for all of their sin. And I pray that in this room that there would be repentance and new life and, and power in the Holy Spirit. Christ, the wisdom of God and power of God. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.